Hi, and welcome to the Bipolar Feminist Podcast. I'm Nikita Ramkisun, and today we are talking about whiteness. This is a long episode, so brace yourselves. Trigger warning. White people. This is part one in a two-part series. Ever since the 17th century, people across the world have been variously granted or denied rights on the basis of being deemed white or ugh, non-white. Whiteness has consistently entailed opposition, power, and subjugation. Whiteness is a modern, colonial invention. It was devised to provide the logic for genocide and slavery. The first recorded mention of white people historians concur is in English playwright Thomas Middleton's 1613 play, The Triumphs of Truth. Research shows that this theme of whiteness as power and unity has persisted even as boundaries of whiteness have shifted. As European powers colonized various parts of the world, they implemented and refined racial categories. In colonial Barbados, 17th century labor codes described indentured Europeans as white and gave them more rights than enslaved Africans on that basis. This ensured that the two groups would not unite in rebellion against wealthy planters. As African-American studies expert Edward B. Rugemer has argued, this also codified racial distinction as a tool of mastery and was replicated in Jamaica and South Carolina. Crucially, it hinged on the fact that enslaved black people had no legal recognized rights, whereas European-born white servants did. Slave status was for life, without recourse, and heritable. In other Caribbean and Latin American colonies, the term white gradually replaced the term Christian as the designation for European settlers. In Haiti, French colonial officials grouped people into an array of categories that conflated race and class. Corn blanc, big whites, petit blanc, little whites, free coloreds, and slaves, with the overarching distinction being between white and non-white. Spanish and Portuguese colonizers in Latin America, meanwhile, developed the intricate and rigid caste system. At the top of this caste-based hierarchy were Peninsula Spaniards, people from the Iberian Peninsula, and at the bottom, enslaved Africans. For a while, especially during South Africa's Rainbow Nation post-democracy hangover, whiteness was something to poke fun at, as people who couldn't dance, don't season their food, and can't sing the first part of our national anthem. But far from being a punchline for an anxious, cathartic joke, whiteness is now earnestly invoked, like neoliberalism or populism, as a central driver of cultural and political affairs. Whereas white folk can get away with mocking whiteness as a bland cultural melange, whose greatest sin was to be uninteresting and basic as fuck, people have been losing their jobs and any social capital we have gained through hard work by writing or speaking about whiteness as an existential danger that affects our lived realities every single day. Much of the change, of course, has had to do with Donald Trump and others like him, for whom whiteness is neither notional nor symbolic, but is the very core of their power. But it was not only Trump. Whiteness has been implicated in events on both sides of the Atlantic, including Brexit, mass shootings in Norway, Aotearoa, and the US, the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor killings, and the 6th of January insurrection in the US Capitol. Alongside these real-world incidents, a bumper crop of scholarship, journalism, art, and literature by the likes of Jordan Peele, Ava DuVernay, Barbara and Karen Fields, David Olusoga, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Colton Whitehead and Claudia Rankin, among many others, has spurred the most significant reconsideration of racial whiteness in 50 years. 
This reckoning has had measurable effects. A poll last year showed that nearly a third of white Americans said that the recent attention to racial issues signified a major change in American attitudes towards race. Another 45% said it was a minor change, and nearly half believed that those changes would lead to policies that would ameliorate racial inequality. In the UK, a poll from December suggested that more than one-third of Britons reported that they were having more discussions about racism than they had previously. At the same time, this new focus on whiteness has prompted much confusion and consternation, especially among white people who are not used to thinking about themselves in racial terms. The US poll found that half of white Americans thought there was too much discussion of racial issues, and a similar proportion suggested that seeing racism where it didn't exist was a bigger problem than not seeing racism where it did. What these recent debates have demonstrated more than anything, perhaps, is how little agreement still exists about what whiteness is and what it ought to be. Nearly everywhere in contemporary society, white is presumed to be a meaningful index of identity, like that of age and gender. It's important enough to get mentioned in news accounts, tailed in political reports, and recorded in government databases. Yet, what that identity is supposed to tell us is still substantially in dispute. In many ways, whiteness resembles time, as seen by St. Augustine. We presume that we understand it as long as we are not asked to explain it, but it becomes inexplicable as soon as we are put to the test. However, as much as whiteness enables power, it also fuels anxiety. Because the category is at once ill-defined, but also bestows great power, people who find themselves in that category have consistently been at great pains to protect it. Historically, and still today, in the minds of many of those who stand most to benefit from it, whiteness must be kept pure. Thus, colonial officials in the British Empire treated white settlers as citizens with rights, but indigenous and enslaved people as threats to be suppressed and controlled. For centuries, universities and schools across Europe formalized the notion of white supremacy through knowledge production and dissemination. Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus taught that every living thing could be categorized and classified into types. The German naturalist Johann Friedrich Blumenbach claimed that human beings were divided into five scientific races based on skull shape, with the Caucasian skull described as the most handsome and becoming. In India, in the heyday of scientific racism, colonial scientists argued that ethnicity and caste were physical attributes, assigning hierarchical status and privileging proximity to whiteness. And as scientific racism became more mainstream, whiteness was naturalized and framed as common sense for generations in students. Even more sinister were the political and social programs that whiteness justified, eugenics, forced sterilization, and genocide. In the 20th century, the humanities and social sciences too were agents of white supremacy. Sociology sought to explain modernity by universalizing the experiences of the European and North American societies, while either depicting African and Asian societies as primitive or simply writing them out of history. What has made whiteness such an enduringly powerful tool is its nonsense logic, that is, how ill-defined it is as a label. It can and has been defined in whatever way best serves to consolidate power for the ruling group. Echoing the division between enslaved people and indentured servants centuries earlier, working-class people in the 20th century were pitted against one another by appeals to whiteness, such as the Irish in the US who were only considered white in relation to blackness. In 1992, a whites-only referendum was held in South Africa. The result showed an overwhelming support for a transition to democracy, or so the history book says. 
This indicated that not only the apartheid ruling elite, but also the majority of white people wished to open up the political space for people of color, in a country where white people make up less than 10% of the population. However, little has changed for people of color, mainly black people, since the changeover in 1994 that saw the apartheid regime fall from political power, but definitely not from economic power. A recent study showed that white people are willing to admit the wrongness of apartheid, even as they deflect responsibility to apartheid-era securocratic and political elites. They had a sense of relief when the country finally transitioned into democracy. However, the respondents in that very same study do not support redress to correct the effects of colonial and apartheid racist policies. This is despite a legacy of white privilege that remains highly visible in the present. This worrying finding assists in understanding how white resistance to wealth redistribution partly contributes to continuing black poverty in South Africa. A recent campaign by the South African Institute of Race Relations said that race is not the problem. The institute, which describes itself as a classically liberal think tank, says it asks people, which people we don't know, what the biggest unresolved issue in South Africa is, and that unemployment, crime, corruption, service delivery, housing and education ranked highest. Racism was not the major problem identified in the survey or any of the surveys we commissioned in the past decade, the organization had said. As we see it, politicians use race as a means to further divide South Africans and distract attention of themselves. <sighs> it goes on to say, most South Africans live on the common ground of decency until a conversation turns to politics, policy, and what it means to be South African in the first place. What speaks quite loudly here is the unsaid, like who were surveyed, where they reside, their socioeconomic statuses, etc. This omission would show how many representative South Africans were surveyed in a country of 58 million people. The Institute, which has the power of white monopoly capital behind it, has been accused of misinterpreting South African racial dynamics previously, but it's important to note who agrees with them. Loud white people on the internet who happen to hold the most economic power and ideological social capital. Whiteness in this country is indeed in power in more ways than just government. White people and white institutions have long centered their experiences, imagining them to be universal. Universalizing their experiences, in turn, has permitted white people to speak on themselves as individuals who are unmarked by race and racism. This stands in contrast to the way in which people of color are collectively othered and racialized, and it continues to have tangible and often terrible daily consequences. Universities and schools impose white-centric curricula and uniform policies that discriminate against black pupils. Officers over-police black communities in the name of law and order. Authorities adultify black children, which leads to their being treated as criminals. In each case, whiteness enacts violence without being spoken. By remembering the history of whiteness, however, we might begin to address the legacies of empire and slavery. A little more than a century ago, in his essay, The Souls of White Folk, the sociologist and social critic W.E.B. Du Bois proposed what still ranks as one of the most penetrating and durable insights about the racial identity we call white. The discovery of personal whiteness among the world's peoples is a very modern thing, a 19th and 20th century matter indeed. Though radical in his time, Du Bois' characterization of what he called the new religion of whiteness, a religion founded on the dogma of all the hues of God, whiteness alone, is inherently and obviously better than brownness and tan, would have a profound effect on the way historians and other scholars would come to understand racial identity. In part, this had to do with the insistence that a racial category like whiteness was more akin to a religious belief than a biological fact. 
Du Bois rejected the idea, still common in his day, that the races reflected natural divisions within human species, as well as the nearly inevitable corollary that the physical, mental and behavioural traits associated with the white race just happened to be the ones most prized by modern societies. That had been the view, for instance, of Thomas Jefferson, who attempted to delineate the real distinction which nature has made between races. If it's easy enough for many people today to accept that whiteness is a purely sociological phenomenon in some quarters, the idea that race is a social construct has become a cliché. The economic utility of the idea of whiteness helped spread it rapidly around the globe. Du Bois was not wrong to call it a religion, for, like a religion, it operated at every psychological, sociological and political scale, from the most intimate to the most public. Like a religion too, it adapted to local conditions. What it meant to be white in South Africa is not identical of what it means to be white in the US or India during the Raj, in Georgia during Jim Crow, in Australia after the Federation, or in Germany during the Third Reich. But what united all these expressions was a singular idea, that some group of people called white was naturally superior to all others. Race implies difference. Difference implies superiority, and superiority leads to predominance. The idea of whiteness, in other words, was identical to the idea of white supremacy. For all the evident successes, the devotees of the religion of whiteness were never able to achieve the total vision they longed for. In part, this was because there were always dissenters, including among those who stood to gain from it, who rejected the creed of racial superiority. Alongside those remembered by history, Harriet Tubman, Sitting Bull, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela and the like were millions of now-forgotten people who used whatever means they possessed to resist it. In part two, the nonsense logic that regulated the boundaries of whiteness, the one-drop rule in the US, which said that anyone with black ancestry could not be white, or the pencil test in South Africa saying, if a pencil slides through your hair, you are white, or the endless arguments over what Caucasian was supposed to mean, the honorary Aryan status that Hitler extended to the Japanese was no match for the robust complexities of human society. Yet, if the religion of whiteness was never able to gain acceptance as an unchallengeable scientific fact, it was still hugely successful at shaping social reality. Some of the success had to do with its flexibility. Like, thanks to its role in facilitating slavery, whiteness in the US was often defined in opposition to blackness. But between those two extremes was room for tactical accommodations. Over time, the definition of who counted as culturally white expanded to include Catholics from Southern Europe, the Irish, and even, in some cases, Jewish people, who did not consider themselves white and who for centuries had been seen as quintessential outsiders of almost every society. The religion of whiteness also found success by persuading its adherents that they, and not the people they oppressed, were the real victims. During slavery, pseudo-psychiatry had been used to diagnose enslaved people with the condition called draptomania, which asserted that some slaves were mentally ill with the inexplicable urge to escape, which financially crippled their masters. In 1692, colonial legislators in Barbados complained that a sundry of the N-words and slaves of the islands had been long preparing, contriving, conspiring and designing a most horrid, bloody, damnable and detestable rebellion, massacre, assassination and destruction. From there, it was more or less a straight line to Woodrow Wilson's claim in 1903 that the Southerners who started the Ku Klux Klan were aroused by the mere instinct of self-preservation. And to Donald Trump's warning when he launched his presidential campaign in 2015 that Mexican immigrants to the US were bringing drugs and bringing crime and they are rapists. Thank you for listening. I would like to thank my patrons for making this podcast possible. Should you wish to support me, 
please subscribe to The Bipolar Feminist on Patreon or donate directly to me on Coffee. See you next week for part two.